A little bit drunk after all that. Praise God. You know, it's wonderful, isn't it? You know, to, I mean, I, I really enjoy teaching and preaching. I really enjoy serving the body of Christ in that way. But I also enjoy team ministry. I also enjoy as much hearing my brother share and, my, and, and, and move forward and my sister. I know there's no sisters here today, but I'm, I think in the past it's been just brothers. Now we're brothers and sisters. Amen. And um, it's exciting what God is doing. I just want to share a few things this morning. I know time has gone um, with all that's happened, but if, if you could bear with me, is that okay? Praise God. Let's turn to, uh, where should we go? Let's go to the book of Job, please. We'll get there eventually. We may not get there, so I may tell you to turn to the book of Job. We may not get there, but uh, we'll see how it goes. So, Father, I thank you, Lord, for all the things that have already been said this morning over this people group, this city, and this nation. Father, I thank you that you desire to move more than even we desire you to move. So, Father, I ask that we would, I think as Stuart said earlier, we would line up with what you want to do, and we would be in agreement with you on the earth in Jesus' name. And, Father, I ask that the words that I say this morning, Father, would not fall to the ground, but would go into every heart and would produce a harvest in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about the goodness of God. I believe that... It's something that I know is quite simple, but I believe sometimes it's good to return to some foundations. And in the, in, the, in the Covenant College and in our local setting, I've shared a lot about the goodness of God because I really believe that the enemy comes to undermine God's character. He comes to say, did God really say that? He's had the same tactic right from the garden. Is God really like that? Did God really say that? Because what you say comes out of who you are. So if, if the word of God is being challenged, it's actually the authority and character of God that's being challenged, not just what he says. If we don't believe in his word, we don't believe in him. So that's why the enemy comes. The enemy comes to say, did God really say that over your community? Did God really say that over you as an individual? Did God really speak to me? Did God really give me that vision and dream? And these sort of questionings, I believe God wants us to just ditch them. They're, they're almost an illegal questioning. That God wants us to have the attitude of Mary, the mother of Jesus, that pondered these things in our heart. That attitude that says, be it unto me according to your word. Not what the devil says, not what my experience has said, not what the people say. According to what you have said, let that be the manifestation. So I want to talk a bit about the goodness of God because I believe that if we don't really understand, not just with our mind in an academic way, but with our heart, that God is good and God is for us, then it leaves the question open, when something bad happens in our lives, when circumstantially there's difficult situations, is God behind this? Is, is God somehow, because He's sovereign and because He's Lord over all, is He the one that's instigating this? And sometimes I believe as Christians we can welcome things into our lives as friends that are enemies. And I believe God wants us to have the understanding and the wisdom to know what comes from His hand and what does not come from His hand. To know His character enough that we welcome everything that God brings into our lives, ask from Him, 
But everything that is not from him, we can recognize it. And just because religion or tradition or a certain viewpoint tells us that this was from God, doesn't necessarily mean it is from God. We must always go back to the authority of the scripture. We must always go back to the word of God. Even if somebody prophesies over you, the Bible says, Peter says this in one of his letters. He says, you have received a more sure word of prophecy that you would do well to give attention to. And it's this. Oh, Jeff, you're a biblicist. Jeff, you're only interested in reading the Bible. You're not interested in the hooplas of prophecy. Let me say this to you. I love the prophetic. I love it. Absolutely love the prophetic. But I believe this, that the prophetic comes out of a foundation of knowing the heart of God and His Word. And I believe that God wants us to be sure about who he is and sure about his goodness. In Psalm 34 verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. You know, you can use the word good to describe God. It's in the Bible, okay? Psalm 145 verses 8 and 9 says this, The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, everyone. And his tender mercies are over all his works. <clears throat> I don't know if any of you have come across any of the literature by Richard Dawkins, but particularly in the God delusion, one of the things he purports strongly is that God is a, uh, some kind of schizophrenic character. One minute he'll bless you, one minute he'll curse you. He quotes a lot of uh, Old Testament scripture out of context and basically makes the point that you know, this, this God of Israel is an abuser. And, you know, obviously we don't believe that, but sometimes in some of the things we say as Christians, some of the things that we purport as even a movement of church, that we can give unchurched people that idea. And I just want to share a quick testimony of a couple in our congregation recently. And for five years, they were desperate to have a child. The lady is 40 and... The gentleman is 36, so they were desperate to have a child, and for five years, they were believing God to have a child, and the wife of the couple is from a a Sikh background, she came to Christ, and all her family believe the reason why she was barren is because she's under a curse, because she left the Sikh religion. And for five years, they've been believing God, and you know, sometimes they've staggered in that, sometimes they've been at the point of giving up. And that's why we need people around us that will speak faith to us. You don't need Job's comforters around you. You need people who will speak faith to you, but also compassion. You see, faith doesn't work without love. But compassion is not pity. That's really important to understand. But you need people around you. And even though they feel they staggered, I believe when, when God sees your faith in his faithfulness, not in your own ability to have faith, but his faith in your, his, your faith in his faithfulness, I believe he sees you like he saw Abraham as somebody who staggers not. It says about Abraham and Sarah in the book of Hebrews, it says that they considered him faithful who'd made the promise. That requires, no matter what the circumstances, that requires a resilience of the Holy Spirit on the inside to say, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what men tell me, I know this is the Word of God, and God is not a man that he should lie. 
So I, I'm going to go with this. And I also believe the younger generation, we can be so into the moving of the Spirit, we can be so into the latest book and the latest fad, that we actually don't get in the Scripture for ourselves. And I really believe that it's important that we have a generation that's not just biblically literate, but a generation that finds life in the Word of God. A generation that finds the heart of God in His Scripture, not just dancing around and enjoying the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit authored the Scripture. And I believe God wants a movement of spirit and word. Not all word, not all spirit, but the Holy Ghost free to move because where the spirit is there is liberty and the word of God, the truth will set you free if you continue in it and be my disciple, Jesus said. So I really believe it's important we have a good foundation that we know that God is good. And this couple, they were going around friends, some friends, some leaders within our network and some friends... And they got various suggestions and wisdom and ideas on how to tackle the situation. They went through two IVF treatments and nothing happened. And after the second treatment, they were really believing God that this would be a breakthrough. It didn't happen. And one prominent person came up to them and said this, perhaps God says no. Another person came up to them and said, You know, brother and sister, some people are called to suffer more than others. These weren't, you know, Buddhists. These were Christians saying this stuff within our our communities. You know, that didn't help this couple. See, these sort of pat answers about God are all right, we can go off and play golf or tennis or whatever, we don't have to stand with the people until we see the breakthrough. And there's a kind of holy anger rises up on the inside of me, and when they were sharing this stuff to me, something came out from the inside of me, and I was sat in a rocking chair by my fireplace as they were speaking, and I leaped out and said, that is not God. That is not his heart for you. And that particular year, Jay Trevay, I don't know where he's gone, but he prophesied over this couple that he could see their baby. Now, that's a dangerous thing to prophesy unless you've heard God. But he prophesied quite specifically about things. And to cut a long story short, she is expecting a child. And the child's due in November. Praise God. God is faithful. Because a Christian with well-intentioned religiosity may say God says no but my Bible says this all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus and we speak the amen to the manifestation or the glory of the promise this speaking this agreement with what God says and what he promises us is not just some ethereal glory to be God but literally glory is this where the word is manifest in John the first chapter of John it says this that the Word became flesh, and we saw His glory. So when the Word shows up in the physical realm, when the promise shows up in the physical realm, that is the glory of God. Not just us dancing around and saying, Oh, glory! I used to have a friend, and he used to get out of chairs after we'd been discussing the Word, and go, Oh, I just had a touch of glory. And all that's great. But my point is, when the Word manifests, 
That's the glory of God. When people are really healed, and not just some second and third and fourth and five, fifth and testimony, when it is people amongst us that are healed and set free and delivered and come into faith and come into life, that is the glory of God. We had a young lady in the church with us about three weeks ago. She went to the doctors and she'd been struggling with a cyst, quite a large cyst on her wrist. And she's just sat there and we've been sharing a great deal, particularly with this couple since they've come in because they've been through a lot of stuff. A lot of guys have got around them as friends. And we've just been sharing that God loves you. God's for you. He's a good God. Good things happen to those people who believe that God loves them. And we've been just sharing this stuff out of our own testimony and out of our own desire to just share what the Word says. And she was just sat in the waiting room and she said, God, just show me that you love me. She looked down. The sister disappeared in the waiting room. God is a good God and God wants to move more than we want Him to move. But I believe that the core and the foundation of us agreeing with God is agreeing that His nature is good. Agreeing that He's good to all. Agreeing that He's faithful to all. You know, it says in 1 John 4.16 that God is love. And as Jay said earlier, all those characteristics of love, one of them is that love is patient. 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient. You know the word patient literally means to be consistently consistent. One thing you can guarantee with your God, He is consistently consistent towards you. I know we have those religious <clears throat> comments and that are thrown out there sometimes that say things like, you never know what God's going to do. God's ways, He's mysterious in all His ways. And they even misquote scriptures. His ways are higher than our ways. You know that scripture in context is this? Yes, his ways are higher than our ways. The context is it, is that men bring judgments against people and want people to be destroyed. And in the context of the scripture is, but his ways are higher than our ways. His ways are mercy and grace. It's not that we'll never know his ways, but doesn't it say in the Bible, Jeff, doesn't it say in the Bible, you're quoting the Bible, let me quote the Bible back to you, let's have a Bible bashing session. Doesn't it say in the Bible, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love them. It's all in mystery, we need all this mystery, mystery, mystery. We need Hercule Poirot to come and solve the mystery. But the next verse says this, God has revealed it by his Spirit. You know what mystery means? It means secret plan. And the Apostle Paul came along and says, Look guys, the church is involved and has been opened up to God's secret plan. And it's called the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. It's the fact that through Jesus, every single person's sin has already been cleansed. And they are reconciled to God. And you've got that ministry of reconciliation. Wow. You don't mind if I shout a little bit, do you? See, the more we know God's goodness, the more we trust Him. The more we trust Him, it's more it's easier for our, us to put our lives in His hands. Hmm, should I go to the book of Job? I don't think we've got time. Maybe I'll do it another time. Go with me. Can you handle a bit from the book of Job? Okay, oh, here we go then. If you need to leave, I won't be offended, and God won't smite you down, because that's not going to be a manifestation of this message. Alright? Because I tell you, this stuff is so good, if you've all got to go and follow the Olympic torch, I'll just be in here myself. Job chapter 1 then. 
just to say it in context, Job is probably the oldest chronological book in the Bible. And all that Job suffered probably lasted about nine months. It wasn't the whole of his life he suffered. Which links in with the scripture that our troubles are light and momentary. Compared to the surpassing glory. And we use this, Christians use it all the time. You're going through a hard time, just going through a hard time like Job. I remember hearing a message by somebody who is a, still a friend of mine because you don't have to agree on everything to be friends with somebody. <laughs> and um, he said, he, he gave a message once, have you met Job's God? Man alive, it was an awful message. And I told him so. But then he told me when I did an awful message, that's fine. But it says first of all about Job in verse 1 and 2 that he was blameless and upright in all he did. See, the thing with Job is, the classical interpretation of the book of Job is this, that here is a, a man who was completely without sin, never did anything wrong, and suddenly God decided to put loads of stuff on him, maybe to teach him something, maybe to, in some way, get something working in Job's life that would bring to the glory of God. Some people believe in reading Job 1 and 2 that it was some kind of test on Job to test his resilience and his faith. Some people believe that it was simply God showing off to the devil that this man was for him. I don't believe any of that. First of all, he was blameless and upright. That doesn't mean he's without sin because 1 John 1 8 says, if any man claims to be without sin, that they deceive themselves. It says in verse 3 that he was the greatest man in the East. It says in verse 3 that he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 donkeys, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. This guy was a rich guy in the east. If you calculate those two numbers in those verses, you've got 7 and 3. What's 7 and 3? Let's do some math. 7 and 3? What's 5 and 5? So in biblical numerology, 10 stands for the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God was coming to this man's life. But it says he was the richest man in the East. When the Bible talks about the East, it talks about something that moves away from God. So God planted a garden in the East of Eden to fill the whole earth. Have you noticed the wise men from the East came to meet God, Jesus? When you, when you went into the temple, you went from the East Gate to the West Gate to worship God. So the East always stands for moving away from God. That's why Muslims pray to the East. And here in Job's life, in the midst of a community and a culture that was totally foreign to the love of God, he was prospering and the kingdom was coming. But there was something not right in the family of Job. There was a situation where his sons and his daughters were partying together and reveling together and he was afraid of that. And he says, look, I've got to make all these sacrifices. You can read it in verse 5. I've got to make all these sacrifices because perhaps, I don't know, I'm not sure, they may have sinned against God. So I've got to make these sacrifices. I've got to make these sacrifices. And then we get a heavenly view of what's going on in verse 6. And that's where we start to read. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. <coughs> You know, Satan can't do that anymore. Before Christ, the heavens were very different to they are now. You see, Jesus says this when he came onto the earth. This is in John 3.13. He says, no man has ever gone up into heaven. <coughs> Why? Because the treason of Adam 
had not just affected the earth, but it affected the heavens. Why? Because Adam could be face to face with God. He could come right up to God, face to face, because God breathed into him. They had a face to face, intimate relationship. And when Adam fell, that authority to be in the presence of God was handed over to Satan. Now some people believe that's not the case. But why, when Satan tempted Jesus, would he say, look, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you authority. If, 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 the, if, if authority wasn't usurped by Satan, if he didn't have it, how could he give it away? And it wouldn't be a proper temptation either of Jesus. So it was a real temptation. Satan had authority. I am glad I didn't live in the world before the cross. The more I read about it. You may think it's pretty bad now, but I'll tell you what. The reason why is because if we realized how good our God was, realize the authority is given in the church, be salt and light, we can make a difference to make this world better. Amen? So this conversation between God and Satan goes on. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? Where have you come from? As though God doesn't know where he's come from. So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. That's a direct taunt to God to say, Look, I've got authority in the earth. And then the next thing God says in verse 8 is this, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Why did he say that? Because the way God works is this, He put man in the earth to have authority and dominion over the earth and to walk with him face to face. That authority was stripped from him by Satan and now man wandered under, under Satan's domain on the earth. He, the heavens were like brass to man. He was under a curse. But through... The revelation that was passed down, even to Job, he connected with God, and God was telling Satan, look, I've got a man in the earth. Because the way God in his sovereignty has chosen to work is that he requires a man in the earth. When I say man, I'm talking generically. I'm talking tiger, male tiger, female tiger. They don't mind being called tiger, okay? So, man in the earth. And he was saying, look, I've got a man in the earth. You may think that the earth is your domain, but as long as I've got a seed there, like I said to you in, Gen- in the Garden of Genesis, that seed will eventually crush your authority, crush your head. So as long as I've got a seed in there, really your, your days are numbered, Satan. And Satan just misses it completely and says, back to God. So Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and around his household? All he has, this is verse 10, but now stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So it was the, the, the devil inciting God to strike Job. This is God's response. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all he has is in your power. Now, the, new, the never incorrect version, the NIV version, some of you may have that. Wave at me if you have the NIV. Okay, one or two of you do. Stalwarts, praise God. Have you got the rainbow strap around it? No, okay. Anyway, <clears throat> if you do have the NIV, that's, that's great. I think it translates it a bit this way. It says, very well then, everything he has is in your power. It's almost like this sovereign decree that God is... Some, playing some kind of game with the devil. Joel, Joel, that's my son's name. Job is a pawn in the game between the God and the devil. And he's saying very well, then in my sovereignty, I give you the right to go and inflict Job with whatever you want to inflict him with. But actually the Hebrew there is better translated behold. And the word behold means 
if you look very carefully at a matter. So God is saying, because God always tells the truth. He even tells the truth to Satan. So he says, behold, everything he has is already in your power. Why was it already in his power? Why did everything that Job have has was already in Satan's power? Why? Well, we'll find out in a bit. And in verse 20, we'll just look at that briefly. Are you still with me? Verse 20, after awful things happen to Job, his family are killed. Sure, his children are killed. All his possessions are taken away. He's got nothing left. And he says in verse 20, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I want you to really catch this. Here's a man who loved God, like many of us do in this room, probably all of us. But he had a wrong view of the nature of God. And he accepted what happened to him as from the hand of God. And he didn't sin against God by saying, God, I, I, I curse you, you've done this awful thing to me, I blame you for everything. No, he said, if this is your will for me, I'll receive it. But it was a lack of understanding. Hosea 4 verse 6 says, My people perish for lack of knowledge. Lack of revelation knowledge of me. And even there's been songs written about this in very difficult circumstances. But what I would say to you is this. That the idea of the Lord giving and the Lord taking away. First of all, God cannot give you what he doesn't have. God does not have sickness. So he can't give it to you. God does not have torment and fear, so he cannot give it to you. There are no bad circumstances in heaven. Therefore, God can't give them to you. I've gone very quiet in here. But I really believe this, that even if you don't agree with what I'm saying to you this morning, that's fine. Just go away in the scripture and search for yourself like the Bereans to see if these things that I'm saying are so. Let the Holy Spirit teach you. Because the only thing that God gives us is himself and the only thing that he takes away from us is the work of the devil in our lives. And in chapter 2 we have the next assault on Job and the same conversation that God has with the devil. And we see quite clearly in Job chapter 2 in verse 7 that it's the devil who goes out and inflicts Job with sickness. Not God. Well you could say God sanctioned it. I've heard all those great Orators talk about the fact that the devil's on a leash. That the, God, that the devil is God's devil. That he uses the devil for his purposes. I don't think it's that clear cut. I believe sometimes the devil tries to meddle in God's purposes. And God just says, well look, whatever you do, it doesn't really matter. Because I'm going to get done through my, my, my people in the earth what's required. The idea that the, the devil is on a leash... And that he's somehow employed by God to do God's dirty work is for me a heresy. It's a heresy of the highest order. The devil is self-employed. That's true. And there's a judgment on him. Jesus put it this way. He's already condemned. 
If somebody is condemned, that means they're unfit for purpose. Why would God use the devil to do anything? He's unfit for purpose. The purpose he was created for was to worship the Lord. And it says in verse 10 that in all that happened to Job, he didn't curse God and blame God for what had happened. Go with me to Job chapter 3. You know, the Bible says anything that's not of faith is sin. Fear and torment and nothing to do with God. You know, some preachers say it's okay to have a bit of fear. It's not okay to have a bit of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. When we understand that our Father is perfect love, fear has to leave. And Job in chapter 3 starts talking a lot of bad stuff. He curses the day of his birth in verse 3. And then he starts to realize somehow some of the things that have happened to him. It kind of dawns on him. But as you read the rest of the book of Job, his comforters come along in inverted commas and talk him out of some of the stuff he was starting to see. But in verse 24 it says this, For my sighing comes before I eat, my groanings pour out like water, for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. What happened to Job was a result of fear, not a result of a father that loved him. What I feared had come upon me. Fear is a powerful force. And the only thing to deal with fear is love and faith. And love and faith are personified in Jesus Christ. And we haven't got much time to go further, but let's just go fast forward right to the back of the Job's book here in chapter 38. Just want to draw out a few more things. Is that okay? Verse 2, God eventually comes on the scene after Job's comforters, after a young man called Elihu starts to speak to Job. Eventually God comes and meets with Job. I believe God was always there, but it's just that Job was listening to the wrong stuff and the wrong people. Didn't have any ear to hear the Lord. See why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So God starts to speak to Job, and he says this to Job directly in verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's talking to Job. Now go to chapter 40. I'm going real fast through this, so forgive me. Chapter 40. Verse 1 and 2, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who condemns God, rebukes God, let him answer it. Now go to verse 8. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me in order to justify yourself? Remember, Job is saying, all this that happened to me is from the hand of God. And God comes along and says, look, you're condemning me? You're saying I did this to you? To get you off the hook? In your response? He's basically saying, look, the way you were operating in all these sacrifices, in perhaps this, in this fear, this fear allowed the enemy to work because he he has authority where fear is present. Don't say it came from my hand. It may be a nice religious school of thought, but it ain't my heart. Don't condemn me to justify yourself. 
And listen to Job's response in chapter 42. Verse 3. Job says this. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. He's uttered stuff about God, saying it's from God's hand. But he's saying, look, I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 5. Listen to this. This is quality. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent. What does that mean? I change the way I think about you. To repent is not, oh God, forgive me. Repent is to change the way I think about you. He got a new view of God. And we see that in God's restoration. It allowed God, the restorative God, the God who loves him, to bring restoration. When you have a view of God that you never know what God's going to do, if you have a view of God that, you know, one minute God's going to bless you, the next minute he's going to smite you. You never know where you are with God, but you can trust in the faithfulness of God. And it goes on, it talks about the fact that God was angry with Job's comforters. Oh my word, God's got angry. Old Testament, they're going to be destroyed. What does God do in his anger? Job, go and speak to your friends about who I am. Get them to repent and I'll just bless them. Oh, that worked out quite well, being the anger of the Lord. That's exactly what happened. God turns to the comforters and says, You've spoken about me, what is not right? Let's just give you an example of what some of these comforters were saying in Job chapter 5, 17 to 18. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises and he binds up. He wounds and he makes whole. Amen, Job. That'll help you out, won't it? In your situation. So God says to them, you've spoken about me what is not right. What's the point? Steve's my friend, kicking him in the leg, then praying for healing. We've got this view of God sometimes. Well, this kick in the leg, brothers, just to show the glory of God. Here it is, bam! I know it's a simplistic view, but it's sometimes what we think as Christians. And it says in verse 10, the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. You see, when we give away a view of God of restorative and a God of love and a God of goodness and a God of grace, oh, we can expect restoration in our own lives. And it's interesting, verse 11. I love the the human, well, not a word, but the humanness of the Bible. It says this, Then all his brothers, his sisters, and those who'd been acquaintances before, this is verse 11, last chapter, came to him and ate food with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. That's their perspective. That's not God's perspective. That's their perspective. Have you noticed these guys? These were these are his family and friends. For nine months, he had nothing and he was sick. They didn't come to him then, but it says that when he's, when he's restored, oh, we just want to come and console you. Now you're rich again, Job. We just want to console you and give you a few bits of gold and silver and and have pity on you, all you've been through. They weren't there for him when he was going through the stuff. But you know what? God was there for him and God restored him. And it's amazing what happened in Job's family because his previous sons and daughters who were killed by the devil, by, by evil men, 
God restores a family to Job. And it says something interesting if you read it. I forget what verse it is. It's verse 15. It says, there was no daughters as beautiful as Job in the whole land. His daughters were beautiful. And it says that Job gave them an inheritance along with his sons. You see, when we get a a right view of the nature of God, it changes the way we view people. That nobody is cast out. That nobody is not good enough. That nobody is, uh, you know, not as good as you are. Because they don't know this or they don't know that. But we can see the gold in every single person because that's the what God sees because He's there to love and not judge. Well, I believe in the judgment of God. So do I. Thank God for Jesus. You see, we live under a totally different system. A totally different system. And now Satan can't go into heaven and accuse us before the throne of God, but we, as we've heard this morning, can boldly go before the throne of grace. You see, God isn't confused. The Bible says in the book of Malachi, I am the Lord and I change not. That's why you're not consumed. If God was always changing all the time, we would be consumed. We would be destroyed. But he says, I am the Lord, I don't change. James chapter 1 says this in verse 17, Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It says in Matthew chapter 7, that even though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more your heavenly Father knows not to give you a serpent when you ask for bread. Sorry, when you ask for a fish. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, Jesus said this, I only describe God as good. Is the only one who can have that description to himself. He is good. Isaiah 54 Verses 14 to 15 says this, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear. And from terror it shall not come come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble. So terror, fear, oppression will try and assemble, but not because of me, says the Lord. Not because of me. Is there a place for suffering in the life of a believer? Absolutely. Suffering for your faith, suffering in prayer, suffering in fasting, suffering in serving, suffering in standing on the word when the circumstances look totally different. Absolutely. But not suffering stuff, we're not supposed to suffer. I think John said this morning, illegal activities that are not from the hand of God. People have said, even prophetic people have said things like this. Well, you know, God is shaking everything. Recession, unemployment, everything's being shaken. God's shaking, 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 shaking. He's like shaking Stevens. Only a few will get that joke. You know, the world is shaking because the world is passing away. But those who trust in God will stand forever. I heard all these prophecies about the Middle East and how the Spirit of God is moving in the Middle East and freedom's coming. Why would he move in freedom in the Middle East in the Holy Spirit freedom and then Islamic terrorists take over nations? We've got to realize something, that God will use the church in the earth to get across his heart. He'll use the Spirit and the bride that say, come. Come. 
And it's about time we stopped all this doom and gloom prophecy and started to speak life. And started to speak the Spirit of God. And started to speak grace. And started to speak joy. And started to speak peace. And started to speak all the goodness of God. I'll conclude. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says this. Verses 1 to 4. I'll read it from the contemporary English version. Long ago, many ways, many times, God's prophet spoke his message to our ancestors. Listen to this carefully. But now at last, God sent his son to bring his message to us. God created the universe by his son. And everything will someday belong to the son. God's son has all the brightness of God's own glory and is like him in every single way. By his own mighty word, he holds the universe together. It is more theologically sound to see Jesus as showing us the full nature of God than one or two obscure, out-of-context scriptures in the Old Testament to base our faith in the nature of God on. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. He said, Philip said one day, he said, show us, Father, and we'll be okay. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. This is John 14. Then he goes on, he says this. Look, guys, if you see the nature of God in me, you will go and do the things that I do. Greater things, because I go to the Father. And so often we cry for miracles, and we cry for supernatural manifestation and we we go after the latest fad and we go here, there and everywhere to find it. But if we just find it in the nature of Jesus, if we follow Jesus, if we see that Jesus is the exact representation of God, and if Jesus, Jesus never went up to somebody in their sickness in the Gospels from my reading and said this, well, this sickness is simply because God is trying to teach you something. This bad circumstance you're going through, woman who you've been bound over for 18 years, it's simply because God wants you to teach you what it looks like to look down at the floor in humility. That was not the heart of Jesus. You know, that's why he hated religiosity. Because the person who was bowed down, he lifted up. The person who was healed, he brought the sickness, he brought healing. The person who was under the oppression of the devil... He brought complete freedom. While he didn't heal everybody, oh, there's many times he did. And we're here to mop up the rest. And I believe, guys, it's time, if we are going to see what has been prophesied this morning, that it starts with us having confidence in our God. But we can ask anything because we know his nature. He'll do it for us. We don't have to come groveling. We don't have to come thinking, well, we're going to be smiting, smoten, or smitten, or barbecued. But we can be totally at home in his presence. What about the fear of the Lord, brother? Fear, fear of the Lord, fear, fear. A little bit of fear. <clears throat> you know what the fear of the Lord is? It's our desire not to displease the one we love. That's the fear of the Lord. Because he loves us so much, 
We want to love him. We don't want to displease him. So we have reverence for him. We honor him. He's amazing. Stand with me, would you? Just close your eyes in the presence of the Lord. Many people out there are asking for you and me to give a hope, an answer to the hope we profess. It's time for us to have an answer. It's time for us to be the answer. But I believe it starts with an understanding that we can trust our God, that our God is faithful and consistent towards us. And if we prophesy not from that point of love, and if we do all sorts of manner of sacrificial things and not from that place of love and understanding his nature, it's a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And we've had enough of that stuff the last 1,800 years. Father, I pray for this community. I pray for each one in this room, including myself. We pray for the wider church, which is our family. Before you, we pray, Lord, that each one would come to a greater heart revelation of who you are as our Father, who you are as our God, that we would fall in love with Jesus again. We would know a confidence in him again that would cause us to be lion hearts, cause us to step out like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.